Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Dear ones, zeal for the cause of Christ is a necessary grace in the life of a Christian if we would be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. As those who have been redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be a people who are zealous for good works, according to Titus 2.14. The Lord Jesus leaves believers no option, actually, in this matter as to whether to be zealous or not. For he commands in Revelation 3.19, be zealous, or literally, be hot. You see, zeal is a fervency for Christ as opposed to a lukewarmness for Christ. It is the difference between a fan who enthusiastically lives or dies with his team as opposed to a mere spectator who cares very little what happens to the team because he is just along for the ride. Dear ones, I ask you, are you a fan for Jesus Christ or are you a mere spectator? When the Lord is despised or reviled by the world, is it as if it were done to you? Done to you personally? Or does it have very little effect upon you? Does your heart, dear ones, burn in love and devotion to Christ? Or are there now only some smoldering embers that are about to go out altogether in your heart for the Lord. Today, dear ones, is the day to repent of your backsliding, to renew your first love that you have had for the Lord Jesus Christ and to be consumed with zeal for the Lord. The main points from our text in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19 are these. First of all, zeal for God and His house. Mark 11, verses 15 through 16. Secondly, zeal for the nations. In Mark 11, 17, and thirdly, zeal for God despised. Mark 11, verses 18 through 19. The first main point is zeal for God and His house. Look with me at Mark 11, verses 15 and 16. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers 
and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Let me first begin with some significant background information to our text. First piece of information, after the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem on the first day of the week, Mark 11.11 states that the Lord entered the temple and, quote, looked round about upon all things. Now, what he saw shall be revealed in our text today. Mark's gospel then states that when evening had descended upon Jerusalem, the Lord returned to Bethany for the night, Bethany being about two miles away from Jerusalem, where he lodged most likely with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, according to John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, the gospel of Mark would make the events of chapter 11, verses 12 through 19, all to occur on the following day after the triumphal entry, which would be the second day of the week or Monday. Mark would seem to follow a chronological sequence, while Matthew in chapter 21 and Luke in chapter 19 would seem to follow more of a logical sequence for they connect the cleansing of the temple with Christ's entry into Jerusalem on the same day as the triumphal entry. Again, I would simply submit to you, dear ones, there's no contradiction between the gospel accounts. There's no contradiction as to the true sequence of events. It is merely a difference between which kind of sequence each inspired author is emphasizing whether a logical sequence, as we find in Matthew and in Luke, or a chronological sequence, as we find in Mark. The second point, by way of background information, is this. After awakening on Monday morning, the second day of the week, Jesus and his disciples headed for Jerusalem. And along the way, Jesus became hungry. There Christ saw a fig tree, which he proceeded to curse for having no fruit. The significance of the curse will be considered next Lord's Day as we connect the cursing of the fig tree in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14, with the withering of the fig tree in Mark chapter 11, verses 20 and following. And so that's why we've skipped these two or three verses in Mark chapter 11, and we've arrived at verse 15, dealing with the cleansing of the temple. We're going to connect the cursing of the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree next Lord's Day. In Mark 11:15, Christ and his disciples arrive in Jerusalem, and as they ascend the heights of Mount Zion, where worshipers were gathering in droves in order to celebrate the great feast of the Passover, 
later on that same week. The Lord approaches the temple and he walks through the gates and the very first courtyard which he would have entered was known as the great court or the court of the Gentiles, according to Josephus. The court of the Gentiles was an immense open area wherein Gentiles were permitted to pray, to be instructed, and to seek the one true living God. A wall separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. And upon that wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple was this warning. No Gentile may enter within the railing around the sanctuary and within the enclosure. Whosoever should be caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. Pretty stern warning. But God had indicated that within the temple proper, no Gentile, no uncircumcised person was to go. On the other side of this wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple, there were stairs that would lead to various courts. Next, the court of the women. And then stairs leading up from that to the court of Israel. And then from that, we would find the, the temple, the sanctuary itself. And so it was as it was terraced, the temple, so that the temple, the sanctuary, could be seen from anywhere within the city. It sat upon a mount, Mount Zion. But it also sat higher than other parts of the temple as well. You see, theoretically, the Gentiles having their own court were supposed to be able to hear the Israelites praying. They were supposed to be able to learn from hearing the Israelites praying unto the one true living God and to be instructed in prayer, to be instructed in seeking and finding the Lord God, who would be to them as well, the one true living God and, and Savior. Another point by way of preliminary information. When Christ had entered the temple the day before, on the first day of the week, the day in which he triumphantly rode into Jerusalem, in Mark 11:11, 11, 11, he looked around upon all things that were within this portion, the court of the Gentiles, this portion of the temple. We now learn in Mark 11, verses 15 through 16, what he saw. What he saw. He saw a profaning of the temple by making it an actual marketplace wherein live animals were being sold, wine for drink offerings and salt for sacrifices sold, and money from other parts of the world being exchanged to pay the temple tax of a half shekel, a tax that was imposed by God in Exodus 30, verse 13. Now, it is significant to our text today that all this was done 
to realize that all this was done, the profaning of this particular part of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. It's significant to realize it was all done in spite of the fact that according to the Talmud, there were already four marketplaces close enough to the temple, there on the Mount of Olives, where animals, wine, and salt might be purchased for sacrifices and money exchanged. However, these four other marketplaces were not under the jurisdiction of the high priest, but rather under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. Apparently, the high priest, not wanting to miss out on his financial gain to be made from the influx of worshippers on feast days like the Passover, had established his own marketplace within the temple somewhere shortly before it would appear, according uh, again, according to the Talmud, uh, uh, somewhere before 30 A.D., the establishment of the marketplace within the temple by the high priest would likely have just preceded the Lord's cleansing of the temple the first time at the beginning of his ministry. You see, what we find here in Mark chapter 11 is not the first time the Lord cleansed the temple. It is, in fact, the second time. He cleansed the temple according to John chapter 2, verses 13 and following, at the beginning of his ministry, and then at the end of his ministry, here we find him doing the same thing. It is now over three years later, and the marketplace has been reestablished within the temple since the time Christ first cleansed the temple. Whether the marketplace was functioning in full force between the cleansing of the temple at the, uh, the beginning of Christ's ministry, as we find in John chapter 2, and between the cleansing of the temple at the end of Christ's ministry, as we find in Mark 11, we are not expressly told. However, it seems very, very unlikely that the Lord, having cleansed the temple on one occasion in John chapter 2, would have tolerated, had he visited the temple and seen the same thing, that he would have tolerated the profaning of the temple on subsequent occasions. Furthermore, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, it would seem to indicate there that what Christ looked upon at that time as he entered the temple was singular and unique rather than ordinary. Well, having now considered this background information to our text today, let us then proceed to see the zeal of Christ for the house of God. And note how the Lord demonstrated his zeal. For God's house. First, Christ cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and presumably forced them to take with them all the animals and items which they were selling. 
The word for cast out that we find in Mark 11:15 is not, dear ones, a passive word, but a very active word. In fact, it's the word that's used in other places in the gospel for excommunicated, cast out of the temple. In fact, we find here that the Lord did not politely ask these buyers and sellers if they would please mind leaving the temple and, and it, it wouldn't be too much trouble. Take the animals with you. The Lord didn't approach it in this way. To cast out, dear ones, is to use coercion. It is to use force. No smile was seen at this time on Christ's face. No gentleness was, was observed in Christ's actions as he chased these profaners of God's house out of the temple and into the streets. We can certainly say Christ was merciful because he could have done far worse, as it were. He could have struck them down immediately. But he did drive them out of the temple instead. The second act that proved the zeal of the Lord was that he overturned the tables upon which the money changers made their profit and upon which cages of doves were placed. <clears throat> Consider, dear ones, that the same divine power with which he drove out the money changers and drove out the merchants could have been used to quietly send them forth by submission to a mere whisper uttered in their ears had he chosen to do so. Did he have to chase them out in this particular way? Did they, were they forced to leave because Christ had no other options? Certainly the Lord, by his power, because he is God, could simply have worked upon their will without a whisper had he chosen to. He could have gotten them out of the temple in, in, in probably many other ways because he is the living God. Why did he choose such a demonstrable way of casting them out of the temple? Well, I would submit to you that obedience to a divine whisper or an influence upon the heart would certainly have demonstrated the power of Christ and it would have cleared the temple. You remember in John 18, 6, that the power of Christ was, was demonstrated by simply saying, I am to these soldiers, this multitude of soldiers who came to take Christ, merely the word, I am. And they all fell over like dominoes, one upon the other. The power of Christ could have been manifested in a similar way in this case. But, it, dear ones, had it been manifested by a whisper or by a mere influence, it would not demonstrate Christ's righteous indignation and anger with those who profane God's house, as this clearly demonstrates. 
The third act that demonstrated the zeal of Christ for God's house was that he would not allow anyone to carry a common, ordinary vessel through the temple. That's what is implied in Mark 11, verse 16, when it says, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Any common or ordinary vessel, any unsanctified, non-consecrated vessel was not permitted to be carried through the temple. You see, to bring an ordinary or common vessel into the holy place of God, that is the temple, was to profane the temple by treating the temple itself as if it were ordinary and common rather than as if it were holy. Dear ones, to profane God's name is not necessarily to utter blasphemous words of hatred toward God, but rather it is to treat the most holy God and that by which He makes Himself known as common or ordinary. To profane God's name is, in fact, to trivialize the Most High God and to trivialize all that He calls holy. Thus we may profane the name of the Lord by using His name to punctuate our sentences without giving due care and reverence to His name. We can say, praise God. We can say, God willing. We can say, God knows. Or we can just use God's name or use the name Lord to punctuate our sentences. But if we do not, in saying and using those words, have reverence, if we do not have knowledge and understanding, and if we do not intend to glorify God by the use of those words, we profane His most holy name. Or we may also profane the name of the Lord by bringing into worship, into public worship, that which is not ordained by God in His Word, whether hymns, uninspired hymns, whether instruments, whether images, whether choirs or holy days, whether wandering thoughts or sleeping eyes, whether lukewarm hearts, whether faith in men or faith in outward ordinances as opposed to faith in the living God, we profane the name of the Lord, in doing so. We may also profane the name of the Lord by our careless, worldly speech and conduct on the Lord's day. That which is not appropriate, that which does not in some way direct us to the Lord or have something to do with His kingdom but takes us into the worldly frame of thoughts and mindset, is to violate, is to profane the name of the Lord. Everything that we say ought to, on the Lord's day, be in some way directing us to the Lord or ministering to the needs of others.
Dear ones, we may profane the name of the Lord by disowning or neglecting lawful covenants by which we are bound, whether the marriage covenant. We may not go out and openly violate the marriage covenant, but we may think in our minds or we may watch things that violate the marriage covenant. We may violate the baptismal covenant by not accounting the fact that our baptism signifies and seals to us all of the blessings of the new covenant and it, it binds us to fight against the world, the devil, and the flesh all the days of our life. We may as well profane the name of the Lord by violating personal covenants which we have made with the Lord or national covenants by which we are bound as well. And finally, we may profane the name of the Lord by using our bodies, our eyes, our ears, our words, or our minds for vile purposes. When the Lord clearly states with regard to our body and regard to our spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we can defile the temple by using the temple of God for vile purposes. Before leaving this point, I would like to answer some proposed questions that may arise as well from this very first point. First question is this. Christ drove out those who profaned the Lord's house. Whose responsibility is it to do so now? It is specifically, and I emphasize the word specifically, the responsibility of those who are lawfully called as officers in Christ's church to drive out, to cast out those who profane the Lord's house. You see, the Lord's house or the temple is in the New Testament the church of the Lord Jesus Christ according to 1 Corinthians 3.16 and Hebrews 3.6. However, having said that, it is not to be done, the officers of the church are not to cast out those who profane the Lord's house, not by physical force, for the house of God and the power that is committed to the church officers in protecting the house of God, in defending the house of God, is not a physical force at all. It is rather a spiritual use of the keys of the kingdom. God has not given to the officers of the church the power of the sword or coercion. You see, Jesus Christ says 
here in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, that this was his house. He comes as the great king and the great high priest. He comes as God into his own house, and he certainly has the prerogative to use force, in whatever degree of force he chooses to use. But he is not delegated to the officers of the church physical force by which to purge, to cleanse his house. To his ministers, Christ gave, as we said, the keys of the kingdom to instruct in love and to cast out, note, the, the obstinate, the profane and the scandalous from his house. Those who are willfully and obstinately in sin... Not those who are weak. Not those who, who seek God's forgiveness. Not those who acknowledge that they have sinned against God and are willing to repent and turn from their sin. But rather, those who persist in their sin. I would submit to you that just as the high priest and the subordinate priests were primarily responsible here for the corruption of God's house, so the ministers and elders in the church today who tolerate corruption within the church now must stand and give an account before the living God, before the Lord Jesus Christ, before Him who had the zeal for God's house to purge it of this corruption, they will stand before that same one, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and they will give an account. And their works, the works of those church officers, will be tried as by fire. Their doctrines will be tried as by fire. Their practices in worship will be tried as by fire. Their views of church government and how they have led the people of God, how they have loved the people of God, all of it will be tried as by fire. It's a very sobering thought for those who lead in Christ's church that such a special judgment will be appropriated for them. And I would also say this responsibility with regard to purging of corruption pertains to parents as well within your own household. That which is displeasing to the Lord, you will be held responsible as to whether you purge and cleanse your household. Whether you are a reformer, like Jesus Christ was a reformer in reforming his church and continues to reform his church. This responsibility lies very heavily upon civil magistrates as well who are keepers of both tables of the law. They are not to treat 
the church of Jesus Christ and its expression as the one true and faithful religion is found in our Reformed confessions and creeds. They are not to treat it in an ambivalent, neutral, indifferent manner. They are certainly not to persecute it, but they're not even to be neutral toward it. They are to promote the cause of Jesus Christ. They are, in fact, to to subdue all who would come against the church. They are to, to uphold the honor of God in the civil realm by the use of the sword. But I would also say, in a more general sense, dear ones, it is the responsibility of all believers to see that they are reformers within their own lives. That each of us come forth as a reformer, going through our life, sifting through our hearts, sifting through what our eyes watch, what our ears hear, what we think, what we say, what we do, and going forth in reformation, purging forth that which is dross, that which is corrupt. Is there anyone here who would say, I am reformed already to the full extent that I can be reformed? And if any of us would say so, I would say we are extremely deceived. And I would assume that we would all declare there is far more reformation that needs to take place in our life. Are we going forth as Jesus went into the temple? Are we going forth with that zeal in our own hearts and our lives to purge forth, to cast out, to depend upon Christ, the great reformer, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to cast out that which displeases Him, to remove even those things that we may truly enjoy but lead us from Christ. A second question. What if the officers of the church will not fulfill their duty in reforming and purifying the house of God as did Christ? Well, dear ones, even though the high priest and merchants had aggravated the sin of profaning the Lord's name, nevertheless, I would have you see all that participated in that particular sin by being there and buying, not only selling, but by buying, even if they had good intentions, were guilty of profaning the Lord's house. Thus, to partake of that which is profane, even if one has not instituted it, is to share in the guilt. The only way for the buyers at that time not to partake of the guilt of the high priest and the merchants who were in the temple was to buy from outside of the temple. 
Likewise, dear ones, the only way for one to avoid the pollution of corrupt doctrine and worship and, do and government within a church is to remove the beam from one's own eye to go in love to the leadership so as to have removed that which profanes the name of the Lord and then to avoid such men if your words fall on deaf ears. To avoid such men. According to Romans 16:17, where we read the Apostle Paul very clearly saying, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. And you'll find the same teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 6 as well. To avoid them. Do not partake of their sins, as did the buyers who were within the temple at that time. A third question. What inspired the high priest, the merchants, and the money changers to so desecrate the house of the Lord? There may have been many sins, but I would submit to you that certainly one of the prominent sins was covetousness. First of all, they were robbing God. It was not unlawful, dear ones, to sell animals to sacrifice or to exchange uh, money from foreign currency into the half shekel that God required of his people in Israel. There was nothing sinful about that in and of itself. What was covetous was that they desired to do so even at the expense of what was holy. Namely, the temple. Not even the sanctity of God's house would keep them from making a profit. Beloved, whatever we are willing to do for our own profit or gain at the expense of God's revealed truth is covetousness. We desire it more than we desire the honor of God. Whether it be for our reputation or for our financial gain or for our, to increase our power and authority or for the applause of men <clears throat> or for our comfort or for our lives or even for the supposed honor of God in filling the church with people or reaching out to more people. You remember Uzzah in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 10, was stricken dead because he did not, he did not have, it says, the wrong motive or intention, but he reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant, as the cart upon which it was sitting began to falter, to steady it, and he was stricken dead. 
because he did not consider the honor of God, that God could protect his ark if he needed to. He did not need man to come to his aid. And so often, there are very pious types of motives that might be given for protecting the honor of God or extending the kingdom of God but not done according to God's means, the lawful means which he has instituted in his word. This is the root of covetousness, to do it our way rather than God's way. A fourth question, how is your zeal for the Lord to be manifested? Is it to be manifested by knowledge Of Christ alone? No. It is to be manifested with knowledge of Christ, but also it is to be manifested by love for Christ. Love for Christ in both word and deed. You see, the Scripture talks about the Jews at the time of Paul having a zeal for God. Romans chapter 10, verse 2, that they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so the zeal there in that case is, is condemned because it was not led by an accurate and true knowledge of God. Whereas when we look at the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Verses 9 through 11, there the Apostle Paul speaks so highly of the zeal of the Corinthians because they had acted according to true knowledge. And in spite of having to judge themselves and not having brought an appropriate censure against this man who was married committing incest with his stepmother. Now they have manifested the appropriate repentance and godly sorrow for their sin. Now, Paul says, in accordance with knowledge, you are demonstrating godly zeal, fervency for the Lord. And so we see in the example of the Corinthians that true zeal for God is not merely light, without heat, nor is it heat without light. It is light, it is knowledge, it is understanding with fervency. So often we think back to when we first became Christians. And we think of, in terms of, I was so fervent and zealous for the Lord in those days. And in talking about with one another, we may even... We may even attribute that to a kind of childlike enthusiasm. But dear ones, I would submit to you that the zeal that motivated those particular actions, and at times perhaps some of the actions were not even as they ought to have been, but the zeal that motivated those actions is so often absent in our lives today. 
Where is the zeal for the Lord's house that it would consume us? Zeal to see Christ's kingdom extended. Zeal to see Christ reform my life, my home, my marriage, this church, and our nation. You see, zeal for the Lord cannot be hidden. It's not merely a knowledge. It evidences itself in our words and our deeds. The second main point, dear ones, and the last two points will go rather quickly, having spent so much time on the first main point, but the second main point is this. Christ demonstrated his zeal by having a zeal for the nations as well. The zeal for the nations, Mark chapter 11, verse 17. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Not only had the high priests and merchants profaned the Lord's name, which is the supreme offense here, but they had as well excluded the poor sincere seekers of Jehovah among the Gentiles from the house of God by setting up their marketplace within the court of the Gentiles. The very court where they were to go, where they were to be instructed, where they were to hear Israel praying for Gentiles to be brought into God's kingdom. They had been excluded from that very court by placing the marketplace in that, in that place. Apparently, <clears throat> the Gentiles could be excluded for the sake of their profit, but they would not think of setting up their markets in the court of the women, where both men and women... Israel could go. There was the treasury also where they placed their, their offerings. Nor would they think of setting up their marketplace in the court of Israel. But in the court of the Gentiles, certainly, there we could set up our marketplaces. We can exclude the Gentiles, but not the Israelites. See, not only had God been robbed by these people through their covetousness, but the Gentiles as well had been robbed of a place within the church. Christ's words here come from Isaiah 56, 7, where the promise of God's grace to the Gentiles is prophesied. Dear ones, we must never forget that zeal for the Lord's house will not only be evidenced in our desire for pure worship, but also in our prayers and our work 
for the ingathering of the nations and the return of Israel unto the Lord. I submit to you that indeed the honor of God exalting him as they ought to have done in the temple is supremely our business. But from that will flow, from that honor for God will flow the desire to love our neighbor. And dear ones, the supreme way we can love our neighbor is to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are without it. You see, the first four commandments have to do with our duty to God, but the last six have to do with our duty to our fellow man. This summarized in the great commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. See, dear ones, our zeal for the Lord must also be evidenced in weeping for the lost to come to Jesus Christ. Pitying those who become our adversaries and our enemies. Praying with tears in our eyes, with a broken heart before God, that He would hear our prayers and break the hearts of those who resist His will. To humble them. To not exclude anyone from Christ's church because we have set up our own marketplaces. Those things that are important to us to the exclusion of taking the truth and the gospel of salvation to those who so desperately need it. Our zeal for the Lord must be demonstrated in yearning that Christ fill His wedding feast with strangers, with foreigners, with harlots, with publicans who know and acknowledge their desperate need of Jesus Christ. Christ did not come to save the righteous or those who think they're righteous. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. So we must have that same attitude. If Christ has shown us mercy, so we must show a similar kind of mercy to those around us. And parents, this truth must burn so, so brightly in your own hearts that it is taught and lived before your children that they're not excluded, that they're not cut out, cast out from Christ's church, that they are to be included within the visible kingdom of Christ, that they are to be given in family worship the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they are to be taught in the ways of the Lord so as to embrace and encompass them within this marriage feast of the Lamb. Dear ones, our children must not see us as spiritual snobs who don't want to get our hands dirty. 
but rather they should see us as seeking to win to Christ those who are unclean. The third last point from our text is that there was a zeal for God that was despised here. The zeal for God was despised. Despised by the priests. Despised here by those who should have been the reformers in keeping these things out of the temple. Look with me at Mark 11, verses 18 through 19. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. Finally, dear ones, consider the consequences. Consider the consequences of following in the footsteps of Christ in reforming his church. It's not without pain. It's not without suffering. It's not without hatred or malice or laughing or mocking. It involves that. That will surely come the way of all those reformers who walk in the footsteps of the great reformer, the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be those who will seek to destroy our testimony and even take our lives. There will always be those who are opposed to true reformation within the church of Jesus Christ because of covetousness, because they desire what they want rather than what Christ wants within his church, over which he is king, over which he is the high priest. You see how comfortable and how coddled we have become when we consider what our faithful forefathers in the faith were willing to suffer to bring reformation to the church. Exile, Isolation, privation of food, clothing, shelter, fleeing for their lives, imprisonment, mockery, torture, and death. Why? Why were they treated in such a way? For their zeal for God's house. Again, remember, dear ones, zeal is not a silent testimony. Zeal is evidenced in word and in deed. But I would have you notice, I close, in their seeking, that is, in the seeking of the scribes and the Pharisees to extinguish the testimony of the Lord, it says that they sought to destroy Him. Why? For they feared him. For they feared him. They tried to to put out the light because they were afraid of him. And I would have you realize, dear ones, that when others seek to put out our light, our testimony, in whatever means or way that that might happen. The reason is 
Not because they don't fear us. It is because they do fear us. They do fear the truth because the truth exposes sin and error. They're afraid of the truth. And they're also afraid because our particular testimony and words for the Lord Jesus Christ, our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, point them not to acquittal before the Lord, but point to that great day of judgment. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, I'd leave you with this verse. The Apostle Paul, who was in prison, who was suffering for Christ's sake, speaks to the Philippians about standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he says in verse 28, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. When we suffer for Christ's sake, it is an evident token of our salvation, but it's an evident token of their judgment that is to come. For to persecute those who stand for Christ is to persecute the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us stand fast, dear ones. Let us continue to walk in the footsteps of the Reformer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us walk in the footsteps of our reforming forefathers, holding high the banner of Reformation. Reformation from all of the pollution and corruption of that Romish church of Antichrist and all of her harlot daughters that have imbibed the same poisonous doctrines and worship and government. And let us go forth with love to win, to bring the nations unto Jesus Christ. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we do thank Thee for Thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise Thee for He is our Reformer. And we do pray that He would come and reform our lives, our families, our church, our nation. We pray, Father, that, that Thou would give to us the grace this day that we would be zealous for thy house, that we be zealous for the nations, that we would not fear what others may bring about and bring against us for our zeal, for thy name. We pray, our Father, that thou would encourage us this day with thy word, that thou would direct our eyes to the only one who can bring us victory, who will cause us, O Lord, to triumph, let us, Lord, not look to man. Let us, Lord, not look to our own desires, but let us look again to the honor of Christ as revealed in his holy word. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.